we're going to journey in together over this time of your word. Lord, would be a nurturing. Lord, would be a healing. Lord, would be a redemptive work in our hearts before you. For you surround and you uphold us. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name. Everyone says, amen, amen, awesome. Have a seat, have a seat. I want to um, start with you uh, this morning by asking you a question. And um, the question is this, have you ever been like hopeful for great change in your life only for things to actually get worse? You ever had a moment like that? Where you were like super hopeful that great things were ahead for you, but actually only bad stuff happened? Or let me ask the question more spiritually. Have you ever sensed that God has called you into something? Has like spoken a word over you? Like the kind of word that is so life-giving? A sense of calling into something new and exciting? And maybe you've taken those first few tentative steps in faith, thinking and knowing that if God's called and if God said it, then of course it's going to go well for only you to find out that actually things are now worse than they were before even God gave you that call. Anyone ever walked in that? Only me? All right, there's a, there's a hand up there in the upper house. I see that hand. Bless you. In the spring of 2006, God spoke a word to me that was probably the most life-changing and life-forming words that he's ever spoken to me. It was the kind of thing that, that I've never actually probably heard the audible voice of God, but this was the closest moment to ever hearing the audible voice of God. God said these words to me. He said, Andrew, it's time to build a family. And it's hard for me to express to you how important and how life-shaping those words were. My, my, my wife and I, we got married very young. I was 16, she was 15. Just kidding, just kidding. I know you're all like, you're all like totally freaking out right now. If you're a guest here, you're like, what church have I come to? But we did get married young. We were, I was 23, she was 22, so pretty young. And, and my wife was from a, a culture where um, a lot of people married young, and often by the age of about 25, uh, a woman in that culture already had their first child. It was just a very normal, natural thing. I was from a culture, Hong Kong, where like, you have to live a whole career first and get really super successful before you even start to think about a family, right? Like here in Hong Kong, we push and push and push back, and so my wife's culture was like, let's go. My culture was like, we have so much more to do before we have kids. You know, we want to travel the world and we want to enjoy life together and we want to see things and experience things. And I want to have a successful career before I even hear the little footsteps of a child running in my house. I like my sleep. So my wife and I had a conversation together. Anyone ever had a conversation like that with your spouse? You can read argument into that, okay? And my, my, my wife was like, it's time, let's go. God brought us together. He brought us together young so that we could have lots of kids. And I'm like, yeah, no. 
So I said, I said, look, look, why don't we just wait a little bit? Let's just wait a little bit. Let's enjoy life together. Let's just wait a bit. So we waited a little bit. And every year, the conversation came up, right? My wife, like, hey, is now the year? Is now the time? And I'd be like, hey, no, you know? Like, I'm not ready. And it was interesting because in my 20s, as I got older and older in my 20s, I actually liked kids less and less. I actually felt like I, I didn't want to be a dad. I felt like I wasn't even sure if I wanted to bring life into this world. It, it was a whole thing for me. I wasn't quite sure about it. And I turned 30. Uh, and when I turned 30, I was still feeling like this. And my wife, bless her, the long suffering. We just sung a song about waiting on God. My wife waited for eight years. And then I'm sitting, and I remember it like as clear as day. I'm sitting on a chair. We're in New Zealand at this time. I'm, I'm sitting on this chair, and I'm staring out of this beautiful window, uh, looking at a beautiful park, a big green park in New Zealand. And there's a, a family playing together in this park on the swing set. And it was a husband and a wife and a child. And they were having the time of their lives. And as I, I, as I spotted them, as I'm looking out the window, I literally hear almost the audible voice of God, Andrew. It's time to build a family. Those words were literally life-changing for me. Because up to that point, I was drifting more and more away from wanting to have kids. I was struggling with this, like, is, am I just really bad? Am I a bad human being that I don't want to do this? And when I saw that couple and God gave me that word, it was amazing. Immediately, I wanted to be by that swing set. Immediately, I wanted Chris and I to be there with our child on that swing, pushing it and having the time of our lives. It was like literally a change, a 180 in a second. I went from, I don't know if I ever want to do this, to I cannot wait to bring a child into this world. I, I was so filled with joy, so expectant that this was what God was doing. I, I, to be honest, I had never felt a wind of the Spirit on me ever before than in that moment. And I knew this was the time that, that God was about to do something crazy in our lives and that Chris and I should start to have kids. And so I gathered Chris and I said, I've been an idiot for the last eight years, but God's given me a revelation and it's time for us to have kids. You can imagine tears in our eyes, the long-suffering wife for eight years. Is, she's so excited. Now, if you've been here at the Vine for any period of time, you would have heard me tell this story many, many times. But what we were expecting was suddenly to be this most glorious moment of God's goodness in our lives turned into anything but. After trying for a while, we realized that we were having difficulty conceiving. And I, of course, thought the problem would probably be with Chris because there's lots of things that can go wrong on the female side of that equation. There's really only one thing that can go wrong on the male side of that equation. But we quickly discovered that actually the issue was with me, not with her. And what resulted was a year's worth of anger and frustration, pain in me, a year's worth of tests, procedures, all to discover what's really wrong with me, which culminated at the end of that year in a very intrusive surgery to discover whether biologically I was able to have kids or not. And I remember going into the fertility clinic at that end of that last surgery, the last chance that we had to do this. I remember sitting down there with my wife, we're holding hands, we're sat behind this desk, and there's the doctor, and he's got his clipboard. And he looks at me and he says these very words. He says, Andrew, you will never be a father. I want you to sit in the tension of those two words 
a year apart. God, it's time to build a family, Andrew. A year later, doctor, Andrew, you will never be a father. And the paradox that those two things brought into my life was incredibly difficult for me to get my head around. I mean, I mean how could you understand God who is supposed to be good, who has said, hey, now is the time to build a family, and, and I feel the wind of the Spirit in it, and I know that this is the right thing, and my wife knows, and she's in tears, and it's an amazing thing. And, and then suddenly we enter into a situation where it feels worse than even before God had given that, that word. Like what we thought was going to be the red carpet of fertility turned into anything but. And I, and I remember feeling all of this pain in me, this anger and this frustration. Perhaps some of you in this room, you, you resonate with this. Maybe your situation's not this exact situation, but you resonate. Because you, you felt sometime in your life where God has called you to something. You felt the wind of the Spirit that this is the right thing, and you, you stepped out, and it's gotten worse way more before it got better. I remember writing in my journal, maybe a month or so after I had the surgery and the doctor had said this to me, I wrote in my journal this, how can God call me into freedom and then take me into more slavery? Come on, church. How can God call me into a moment of great freedom and then my life kind of become more enslaved than ever before? And this question and this paradox is exactly what we see as we enter into what I think is perhaps one of the hardest chapters of the whole Exodus journey, chapter 5. And chapter 5 is this moment where God's people, a little bit like me staring out that window and seeing the people on the slide and having this transformative feeling that God is about to do something great, God's people are right in that place. They're right in the place where, where they believe that God is about to do something great. They've had the signs. They've seen what Moses has done. They believe Moses is cool, and they're ready for their freedom. And I wonder whether for some of you in here, as you've been doing this Exodus series with us, and every week we've been talking about your own personal journey of Exodus, I wonder how many of us in this room, we, we feel the wind of the Spirit right now. We feel like finally this could be our moment where we can get rid of this sin that we've been dealing with. Or, or finally this is the moment where we'll be able to repair this part of our life or, or find a freedom for this thing that's been holding us back. Many of us in this room feel the wind of the Spirit for the season that we're in. And if that's you, that's so often been me so many times in my life. I want to say something really clear up front because although this is hard to hear, the story of the Exodus puts this front and center for us. And it's this. Just because God calls us into freedom doesn't mean that the journey is going to be a pain-free one. Come on, church. Just because God calls us into freedom doesn't mean that the journey is going to be a pain-free one. In fact, if the Exodus teaches us anything, it teaches us that the journey of deliverance is a journey that is up and down, a journey of great peaks and highs, but also a journey of painful lows. It's a journey where things seem to work out, and then it's a journey where things seem to go a couple of steps backwards before they go forwards. See, the sobering reality of any journey of deliverance is that it's never going to be straightforward. And I'm super glad that the Bible doesn't sugarcoat it for us. And I know as a pastor here at the Vine, if I'm calling you into a season of Exodus, I know what I'm actually really calling you into. I'm calling you into a moment where it's likely to get worse before it gets better.
And I want to show you the journey that God does pastorally for his people in this. And I, and I hope for those of you in this room where things feel worse right now, that what we see in the scripture here might bring a sense of encouragement to you. I want to show you the contrast that happens here between chapters 4 and 5. Chapters 4, is, as John so beautifully taught us last week, the signs that Moses has given, the, the stick becoming a snake, the leprosy of his hand disappearing, the signs that he took us through. Well, right at the end of chapter 4, you get this climax of joy and expectation in God's people. Let me read you just the, the final few verses of chapter 4. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything that the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. Notice that. They believed. They were excited. They know God's about to act. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. Can, can you sense the joy? Can you sense the expectation and the hope for God's people? Wow, wow, God's come through. God's remembered us. God has compassion. He's concerned for our misery. He wants to break in and change us. God is about to move us into freedom. And there is this momentum in this passage right here. And you can almost sense that Moses and Aaron, as, the, as God's chosen leaders over their people, they're being filled with confidence. All the people are worshiping Yahweh again. All the people believe that God is about to act. This is a beautiful moment. And in this joy and the confidence that comes with the wind of the Spirit that God has said something, Moses and Aaron now go before Pharaoh for the very first time. And they don't go before Pharaoh timid and weak and oh. They go filled with this worship moment. They've just had a mountaintop experience, and they're buzzing like anything. They've just stared out of the window, seen the family playing on the swing set, and they felt a 180 turn in their spirit. And here's what happens. Chapter 5, verse 1. After this amazing moment, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Sure, that's a great idea. Pharaoh said, Who is this Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? <laughs> I don't know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. Not what they were expecting. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now, now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike you with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt, that's, that's Pharaoh as well, Pharaoh said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of this land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, notice this, that same day, Pharaoh gave his order to the slave drivers and the foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But, uh, but they have to create as many bricks as before. Do not reduce the quota. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out and going, let us go and sacrifice to our gods. Make them work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to the lies. <laughs> this was not what they were expecting at all. They were expecting that if God's spoken, God's going to act. They were expecting that if God is for us, who can be against us? They were expecting Pharaoh to bend to the will of just the reality that God is here. And Pharaoh's response is, who's this God? I don't know this God. 
Scotland means nothing to me. What means something to me is your labor and your workforce. And because you're being so lazy, I'm actually going to make it even harder for you. I'm going to take the straw away from you that we normally give you to make bricks. By the way, straw makes the bricks strong and holds it together. I'm going to take that away from you so that when you make your bricks, they're all going to crumble. But you've got to make the bricks the same as they were before, the same quarter. It's going to be really hard for you. Cry me a river. Get on with it. So when they were expecting freedom, they got deeper oppression. When they thought things were going to get better, it actually got worse. I wonder if anybody else resonates with this. This so upsets the leaders of Israel that they actually go to Pharaoh and they try to pretend like they can suggest to Pharaoh that he's being a little bit mean. They're like, okay, Moses and Aaron screwed up. Maybe we go to Pharaoh and try to compromise. So in the rest of the chapter, the elders actually go to Pharaoh and they say, hey, Pharaoh, like, like I know you didn't really mean that, right? Like, that's just you being a little bit upset and angry. That's fine. Um, we'll just continue as things have always been. We really like being your slaves. It's great. And Pharaoh says, you're lazy. You're completely lazy. And he doubles down on them. Not only that, but he now beats them. He now whips them. He now causes so much pain on them that, that it was way worse before even God had shown up. Notice this, church. They thought God showing up meant everything was going to be great. God showed up, things got worse. So much so that they then, the leaders of Israel then come to Moses and Aaron. I want to read this to you towards the end of the chapter. It says this. It says, when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said this, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Can you, can you hear the frustration and the anger from God's people coming to God's leaders, Moses and Aaron, and saying basically this, we curse you. We curse you. We can't even believe we ever listened to you. Because now it's worse for us than it's ever been. May God judge you. May he pull you down. May you suffer worse than we're going to suffer. Because now the swords are against us. It's not easy being a spiritual leader before people. I have to say, over many years of being a leader here and being a spiritual pastor, I resonate with Moses and Aaron here. Andrew, you promised that this would happen. Andrew, you prayed for me, but it didn't seem to work. Hey, this, that, and the other. And it's very easy, and I get it because I do this too. I have a boss as well, so I go to my bosses, our eldership at times. If any of them are here, forgive me. But I go to them, and I get pretty strong with them too. Why is this happening? But you said this was going to happen. You said if we did this or put resources here, this was all going to work out. Why is it starting? It's very easy for us when, when things are not going the way we thought that they were going to go, for us to start pointing fingers anywhere else other than towards ourselves. Are you with me? Yeah. But I want you to see how Moses and Aaron respond. In verse 22 and 23, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought more trouble upon his people, and you have not rescued your people at all. I love Moses here, because Moses has just had a barrage of criticism from the people that he's supposed to be leading, and he's seen what's happened to his people. And so Moses does what perhaps all of us might do. He then goes to God, and he says, God, what's going on? God, this is not right. 
You said you were going to act in a certain way, and you haven't acted in that way. Those two things don't work out. And he begins to look at God in a, in a different way, and he sort of says, when are you going to act? There's this frustration. There's this honesty. There's a transparency in what Moses is saying to God here. And I'm grateful that we have moments like this captured in Scripture, because maybe I'm a worse Christian than you, but I've said stuff like this to God many times. In fact, I could rewrite this passage like this. Andrew returned to the Lord and said, Why, O Lord, have you brought this trouble on me? Why did you give me the excitement to build a family to only make me incapable of doing so? Ever since I stepped out in your name, you have brought me nothing but trouble. You have not delivered on your promise at all. You've never done it. It's not worked out, God. You haven't come through for me. And I wonder whether you could rewrite this passage for you. I wonder if there's things happening in your life where you felt like God had called you into something and because God called you in, you thought it was all going to be roses and it hasn't gone that way. Maybe for some of you in this room, it was your marriage and you felt like God was saying, hey, your marriage is going to get better, but your marriage has only gotten worse. Maybe some of you here, it was, it was your finances. You thought, hey, my finances are going to get better. I felt like God is blessing my finances right now, but you've only seen your bank account go down and down and down. Maybe for some of you here, it's about a sickness. You've been carrying a sickness in your body or in your mind, and, and you felt people have prayed for you, and you thought, yeah, my healing is coming, and, and you're still sick. In fact, you're more sick than before when you started praying. Or, or maybe it's an internal sin or a, a fear that you might be carrying, and, and you felt that, that you came to God, and you asked for forgiveness, and you felt that God forgave you, but you're suffering now more temptation than you ever did. And we have to recognize that so often there's this reality in our life where we think things are going to get better, but they actually get worse. And as we enter into a deeper moment of exodus, a very sobering moment of exodus, we have to remember that any time that God is about to bring us out of darkness and brokenness, the darkness and the brokenness will always fight back will always try to hold on to us, try to keep us locked down in the slavery, try to make things worse before they get better. And here's a classic moment where they thought it would be liberation, but it becomes more slavery. And some of you right now, that's your story too. So what's the answer? How do we reconcile the reality of, Andrew, it's time to build family. Andrew, you'll never be able to be a father. How do we reconcile the, the paradoxes that so often we feel in our Christian faith? Well, I want to be honest with you right up front that the last thing I want to do today is offer you some glib answers. I, I don't want to stand before you and, and, and say, hey, it's easy. Just all you have to do is pray this one prayer. It's an amazing prayer. It's just three steps in this prayer. And if you pray this prayer, your whole life is going to be amazing for the rest of your life. I wish I could stand before you with some theological magic wand and just go open up some scripture to you that's going to help suddenly download everything you ever need to know to know that you never need to suffer ever again. I'm not going to do that to you because that's not what the Bible does for us. In fact, when I, when I was going through my infertility, man, it felt like everyone else had the answers except me. Have you ever felt like this when you're going through a hard time? particularly as a Christian, and you've got really well-meaning and good Christian friends, and it seems like all your Christian friends have a better line to God than you in the moment of your greatest despair. And no one? Just me? I mean, during my infertility, everybody had the answer to make me fertile. 
And everybody, well-meaning and well-attentioned, Andrew, have you just prayed more? If you just prayed this prayer, you'd be fine. Or, more likely with the vine, Andrew, have you tried Chinese herbs in medicine? Because <laughs> if you just took this medicine, you would be pushing babies out all over the place. Like, everybody had an answer for me, except me. And I, and I want to be honest about this. So often, everybody else's answers created more pain for me than my actual infertility. I just wanted someone to sit for a moment in my pain and love me and just be there with me. I wanted somebody to be present when everybody else wanted me well. And I, and I know that was a good thing. I know that oh, their hearts were pure and in the right place. But sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. And so I don't want to offer you some answers today. But what I want to do is show you two things that happened for Moses in this passage. And I offer these two things to you, not as answers, but as invitations for reflection. And if you are resonating with anything that I'm saying here today, if you recognize this journey and this paradox in your life as well, I pray that these two things, these two reflections, might help you to reflect in a deeper way as you go forward. Here's the first thing. Moses, Moses wrongly accuses God. He actually goes before God, and it's kind of ironic, but he actually accuses God of not being compassionate enough. And this is an interesting thing, because I think we all do this to some degree when we're walking in really difficult moments in life where we're struggling to reconcile a good God with the reality of our circumstances in our lives. We so often accuse God of not being concerned or compassionate towards us. That's so often our default starting place. God, you're obviously not concerned or compassionate enough because if you were, I wouldn't be in the situation that I am in. You've you got to understand for Moses, two weeks ago, when God calls him at the burning bush, Moses doesn't want to go. It's really funny because he's saying that God is not compassionate when he is not compassionate. When just two weeks prior, Moses was like, I don't really want to go back there. Why would I want to go back to Egypt? i got a great family. I'm re rebuilding my life in the desert. Things finally are going well for me. I don't have to pretend to try to be someone. I don't have to be this pharaoh. I'm not caught in the crossfires. It's really nice where I am right now. Why do I need to go? There's no compassion in Moses' heart right at the start of the burning bush for his people. And here after he's now stepped out in faith and trusted that God's going to come through, his first response is to blame God. Why are you not compassionate enough? And God's like, dude, everything I've done so far is because I'm fully compassionate. There is no more compassionate person in this whole world. I, compassion literally caused me to come and call you in the burning bush. Compassion caused me to want to do all of these things. And yet here's Moses beginning to second guess the character of God simply based on his circumstances. And you need to know throughout my infertility, in the darkest moments of my infertility, I allowed my circumstances to define for me how much love and compassion I thought God had. It's really dangerous when you think that you have more love and compassion than God. Come on, church. It's really dangerous when we think we have more love and compassion than God because the result of that is for us to become God. The result of that is for us to not trust him anymore and to put trust only in ourselves. And Moses, I think, is reflecting something that we all carry. It's not wrong to say the things he says to Moses here. Again, I love the fact that Scripture captures for us an honesty that we can bring before God. 
It's good for us to express our pain and our emotions and even our frustrations and anger at him. But we have to be really careful that we don't cross over that line where we begin to think that we're better than God. That we begin to think that actually the solution is more with us than him. That we begin to walk in pride rather than walk in the waiting as things get worse before they get better. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing that I think is crazy amazing. In the very moment where Moses is lashing out at God for his lack of compassion, God is building in Moses' heart more compassion. See, this is really mind-blowing. That Here's Moses going, God, you're not compassionate enough. And God, in his compassion, is actually using this very trial, this very moment, this very reality of the doubling down of oppression on his people to actually form into Moses the kind of compassion he's going to need to have in his heart to be able to lead his people to the freedom that he's going to do so. See, at this moment in Moses' story, he's not yet fully ready to be the leader of his people. His heart is not yet there in terms of compassion. He's a lot more compassionate than two weeks ago. Because two weeks ago, before the burning bush, he was like, my life's great. I don't really care about everybody back in Egypt. Now, he's actually going before God and saying, don't you care for my people? Can you see? His heart has already changed. His heart has already been forged into a place of compassion like it's never been before. But he's still blaming God. So the compassion that God wants to place in him is not in the state or in the depth that he really wants it to be. And God is using this moment of being in a fire to forge something in the heart of Moses that will be the very thing that will cause him to be able to lead his people to the promised land. Because you're going to see, now this is really interesting, things are actually going to get worse for Moses than this moment right here. In fact, from chapters 5 to 14, it's one long journey of things getting worse before they get better. That's a lot of chapters. We're going to be going through these chapters together. You're going to be sick of it at the end of it. But I want you to journey with it because I want you to see that things get worse before they get better because there's something that God is trying to do in shape and form in Moses because in the future, when Moses comes up against hardship, he's no longer going to point the finger of blame at God. He's instead going to get on his knees before God and he's going to say, I know you're compassionate. I know you're powerful. I know you can act. So come once again and save your people. It's a very different heart from, why is this going on, God? Why are you making me a fool? Why is all this bad stuff happening? To God, you are compassionate. You are gracious. And if you don't go with us, I am not moving one step forward. That's a different Moses. And where did that heart get formed? Right here. Right in these moments where he thought it was the worst thing that could ever happen. God was shaping in him the very heart that would actually deliver his people. You've heard me share my story about infertility a lot over the last number of years. But you've actually never heard that story from my wife's perspective. In fact, up until now, my wife has never had the opportunity to share her side of that journey. And in many ways, my wife's journey mirrors and echoes Moses' journey here too. My wife, who for a long time suffered because her husband was not coming through for her. My wife, who every year was hoping for something that got delayed. And then finally, when the thing started to happen, when, when the call from God came and my wife in tears was so excited for what was ahead, then things got worse 
way worse. And then through that, she had to wrestle with the reality of all that was happening. As a woman, the great desire that she had to bring forth life in the world and have to wrestle with the reality that she married someone that would never be able to help her fulfill that wish. And then through that struggle, through that pain, forging inside of her something that was the exact thing she and I needed for all that was ahead. I want to now show you a film where my wife will share her story with you. It's very raw. It's very honest and transparent. But as you watch it, I pray that you would see this Moses moment in her, where even in the pain of what it is that she goes through, something is forged in her that could never have been forged otherwise. Let's have a look at this film. Okay. Would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, um, I'm Christine. Um, I'm Andrew's wife, and I'm going to have a chat with you about our journey of how our family grew and our infertility. I think we started talking about having children quite young. We were quite young, um, and that conversation lasted for a long time. And then, um, kind of when we were ready to have children, um, we couldn't. <laughs> we thought that we would get pregnant quite quickly. I suppose a lot of people think that, and it does take time. So, um, after a couple of years, we started to get some, some um, blood tests and different procedures done to see if there was an issue. And we discovered that that there was an issue and that it was primarily with Andrew. So he had to go through an, a number of other tests to see what exactly was going on, where the problem exactly was. Um, so it took quite a while and we saw a number of specialists. But yeah, there were a lot of emotions, mainly, I think for me, mainly around frustration frustration that we didn't start the process sooner and I have to admit that I was like well I wanted to start it sooner so the fact that it's happening all now and it's taking such a long time and we're getting older and older I suppose I kind of put that at Andrew's feet that my frustration is, is his fault in a way um, and then you know just sadness anxiety around what things were going to look like particularly for me anxiety around how Andrew was doing you know because um, I could see that it's really hard to see other people struggle right so I can kind of deal with my own struggles and I usually keep that pretty private but when you're seeing another person um, in pain and struggling with questions it's quite difficult when you want to move into the next life stage and, and you it's difficult and you see everyone else doing it, it it's kind of a, a bit what's the feeling it's a bit lonely you can feel a bit lonely I think that loneliness that fear of being lonely and kind of being left behind I get angry 
So I tend to, I do withdraw myself from the people that I'm angry with. Um, and then I feel guilty that I'm withdrawing. And then I'm going in that whole loop of, well, if this is about a fear of being lonely, I'm causing myself to be lonely through withdrawing. So I think for people around me, for friends, it might have been a little bit confusing sometimes. <laughs> but of course, they were really good and they just let me feel feel the way I felt. So that was an impact. So I do remember there was a time where I decided to go out for a walk on my own. When I'm on my own, I can then think about my own feelings because nobody else is around for me to attending to and that was when I was thinking about not carrying a child because if we couldn't have children biologically I wouldn't be carrying a child I was thinking about um, you know, having a child in your womb and, and what all the experiences that I'll be missing out on. And, you know, I felt a loss because um, right from an early age, you know, little girls are given prams to push and babies to care for. And, you know, you play house and all that kind of stuff in society. It's like this is, this is the way that you grow a family. So I felt sadness. I felt loss. I felt, you know, I, I felt grief that I wouldn't know any of those experiences. I think when I process through the life, you know, not being able to carry this life and grow this life inside of me, which was sad, disappointing, grief, um, and then thinking about a life that is already present in this world and, and we have such a ability to impact that life. I started thinking about life and how these children who are available for adoption um, have already entered into this world, they've already got life and their life before them is a blank slate and it's dependent not on what they choose but on other people making these big choices, which is going to affect their life in such a phenomenal way. And I felt, you know, a great love for that, that, that Andrew and I could, could make a decision that will impact a life that is already here in such a powerful way. I've felt because there's a person, right? We have a child now, um, and that's my child. I don't want another child. Even if I went back to that place, knowing what I know now, I'd be even more like, I don't want to care. I don't, you know, I want this child. Um, you know, not long ago, I was thinking, you know, I'm disappointed. feel a loss that 
I haven't been able to carry my child. So I want to carry Mia. Not just any, not just carry now. But I want to carry my child. So, yeah, I'm still working through that and it's okay. And it will always be there, I'm sure, as she gets older, every stage of life, you know. I don't know, there's something that comes through carrying a child and I really miss that I wasn't able to carry my child. So, yeah. I think, um, I think there's something truly profound about a God who is able to birth out of a place of great pain in Chris for not being able to carry a child, to be able to birth such a sense of mother love for Mia that now that sense of loss is because she couldn't have carried Mia. That bio biology and blood means nothing when there is this love that's birthed in that kind of place of pain. And I think that is truly profound. And what God is doing with Moses in Israel, as the slavery and the oppression get harder, and as the pain grows, is he is forging and forming something in them that will become this expression of love that could never have been there otherwise. And it's the same for you. But whatever it is that you might be facing, God is doing something for you. See, the, the economy of God's kingdom is so different from how we often think. That conflict usually precedes triumph in God's kingdom. Suffering usually precedes victory. And we have to understand that, that suffering does not mean that God is not faithful. That suffering and salvation are not strangers to each other. That sometimes God invites his people to make bricks without straw. That your greatest moments of freedom will come when you allow God to take you to places of your greatest fears and brokenness. That is actually what Exodus is all about. I wonder whether I could pray for you. Could you just open your hands as I pray? Father, we just come in this moment pastorally with you. Each one of us holding a story. Each one of us holding moments in our lives that we can connect to. Where things got worse before they got better. And perhaps there's many of us in this room right now watching online where that resonates. Where we're actually in a moment right now where it feels like things have gotten worse. And perhaps we felt you, God, call us into it. Perhaps we felt that rush of the wind of the Spirit. And now we're in a place where we're like, did I get it wrong? <laughs> did I make a mistake? Because how, how could God be in this if it feels like this? Father, I want to pray for anyone in this room right now that is feeling like that. Holy Spirit, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you come? And Father, would you come and meet 
each one of us in this moment. Father, we ask for your presence with us. And Father, we may not know what it is that you're forging. We may not understand in this moment what it is that is being forged in the fires of the pain that we're in. But you are not distant and you do not lack compassion. For you are compassionate and gracious to us. And Father, we do not want to do anything unless you go with us. So Father, for anyone here in this room where this is a moment for them just to just to have you meet them in the place that they're in right now. I want to invite you just to open your hands if that's you. I just want to allow some time for the Spirit of God to minister to you. He's here with such a beautiful pastoral heart. He sees you in this moment. He knows better than anyone your pain, the trial, the challenge that you're facing, the difficulty that you're struggling to overcome. He's with you. He's with you. I invite you just to bring your heart to him. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. I'm going to invite in a moment just the team to sing a song over you. And perhaps if you're in this moment and you're not sure what your prayer is, then as they sing this song, it's like a prayer over you. It's a prayer of what God is doing in and through this moment for you. That he is forging and creating something in you that could never have been there unless, unless he would be with you in this moment. And just like Paul would write to the church, sometimes we're crushed, but we are not overwhelmed. Sometimes we're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We carry around inside of us the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be found in us. I pray that you would feel the pastoral love of God just ministering to you as he creates some new wine. And Lord, I want to call forth new wine. New wine, Holy Spirit. In the right time, in the right way, in these people's lives. Pray for new wine.
in the crashing, in the pressing. 